G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast or iTunes and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Sadly, uh, I don't have actually any more reviews to read out today, but hopefully next week we'll keep our metrics and uh, uh, that we'll uh, identify with one day um, and be able to understand and probably do a podcast on, on the analytics um, but uh, it basically makes it easier for others to find us and access this information um, to, to get it out to the people who'd like to listen to it. But we'd really appreciate your time if you could spend a few minutes um, to give us a review. So I'm joined today in the studio by but not one but two eminent uh, neurosurgeons. So we have uh, Dr. Patrick Kenny on, on my left. Hello, Patrick. Hello. And Patrick was at the RBC for, for a number of years, um, just shy of, of a decade, but is now working at the Small Animal Specialist Hospital in Sydney. So, uh, so thank you for, for coming back and joining us in the studio. Thank you, Dom. And, and also to my, to my right, we have uh, Joe Fenn, who is one of our lecturers here in urology and neurosurgery, and try to try to fill the, the, the void that is left by Patrick. But obviously, this is a podcast, we can't see that Pat is actually six foot five, and Joe is not. But <laughs> neither am I. Speak shoes to fill. Speak shoes to, to fill, indeed. Um, so, so what was thought about uh, um, talking to you, uh, kind gentlemen, thank you for giving me your time today, is really to uh, ask about uh, hypervisectomy because I know it's, it's both in your in your interests and um, your sphere of expertise. So, so, so now, uh, as far as, it's not a numbers game, and I, I know, Patrick, you've been uh, doing these hypersectomies for a while now, but you're, you said you're 45 uh, cats and... Three dogs, is, it, is that right? Uh, 46 cats and five dogs. Oh, I, I, not that it's a competition. <laughs> not that it's a competition at all. And Joe, um, I, I wouldn't even embarrass myself to try and remember. You're, you're up to... Uh, Just a mere 25 cats uh, and three dogs. I, I think Joe will catch up fairly soon, though. Well, absolutely. He's only been doing it for a week, so, you know, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, he's going he's to get there for, for sure. <coughs> So, so, um, so maybe I could ask by by saying so um, hypervasectomy. So, so, do we know like when this started in the, in the veterinary literature and what was the, the sort of first indication for them? Um, well, they, they've been doing hypervasectomies in um, animals, and I guess I'm not I'm not so sure about cats, but dogs. They've been doing them for at least a century. Um, I mean, certainly since um, Harvey Cushing's time um you know he's kind of one of the the sort of founders of modern neurosurgery um who was active a bit over a century ago mainly and he um uh, you know certainly in the days when they were doing them on on people they were also doing them on dogs as as experimentally Uh, as far as pet animals go it's really been since the late 1980s so um they're um techniques described in you know what we would call you know i guess the veterinary literature as opposed to the sort of research literature um since the late 80s and um the the neurosurgeon who's done um you know by far the most dogs um uh, bjorn may who's in utrecht he's um you know at, at least since the early 90s i think about 93 or something like that they started you know publishing clinical 
pet dog cases. So um, I, I, I guess it's been out there for pets for, well, however long that's been, about 25 years or so. Um, but, you know, certainly mainly in the one institution as in as in his for, for most of that time. Um, I guess we, we started here in 2012. And what was the impetus to, uh, to start a hypervasectomy program, Pat? Um, uh, Professor David Church basically dared me to. So. <laughs> um, yeah, no, we, we've, uh, at, the, at the RBC we have a, um, a, you know, a large caseload, obviously, of, of um, uh, particularly cats that have um, diabetes and uh, uh, diabetes caused by a pituitary tumour, so the the, uh, um, the pituitary pituitary tumour is is a um uh a um uh, uh yeah this case in in in, in cats uh, uh um causes hypersomatotrophism so there's a, a an excess of growth hormone um and apart from um you know if if enough time goes by phenotypic um, acromegaly um, uh, it also causes insulin resistance and then therefore they become diabetic um, and uh, really um, you know that there, there hasn't been very good treatment options for controlling their their diabetes but um, if you take out their um, pituitary tumour and, and uh, growth hormone excess, then you can offer a cure, um, both of their endocrinopathy and of their brain tumour. So it's a, it's a, it's the most um, elegant solution, and in, in humans it would be the standard of care solution as well. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think it sort of went back to a, a conversation with, with Professor Church over a, a CAT CT back in uh, probably 2010 or 2011, and it took us a bit of time to to set up the program and I think we did we did three cases in 2012 and eight cases in 2013 and I think 15 cases in um 2014 and it's it's gone gone from there so so it sounds yeah. like sounds like progress yeah the way progress should be so, so Jay can you, can you tell me about potentially why we would do this in in dogs yeah, so I guess that the majority of cases in canine hypophysectomy is going to be for treatment of pituitary-dependent hyperadrenal cortism. Um, obviously, as Patrick said, our experience with the procedure has been predominantly with cats, and that's been predominantly for treatment of acromegaly and insulin-resistant diabetes. Um, but in dogs, yeah, it, it seems to be more commonly that we're doing this for hyperadrenal cortism, um, so to remove a pituitary tumour. Uh, with the aim of achieving an endocrine remission um, from their hyperadrenal cortism, which I guess has, you know, been a bit of a paradigm shift in the way that we manage that condition, because it's traditionally considered quite a medical condition. Most people are more aware of it as a condition which we can treat with medications such as trilostane. But uh, I guess that we know as well in human medicine that surgery is considered the standard of care for the treatment of cushions in people. Well, yeah, H- Harvey Cushing was a neurosurgeon, <laughs> so I, I think the clue of the, the ideal name. treatment is in the name there. Well, a yeah. chance to cut is a chance to cure, isn't it, gentlemen? So, exactly. So I think that's the same. Is, is it easier? Uh, I, I know the surgeries are ridiculously difficult, but is, is there um, harder to go from cats to dogs or easier? I would have thought the size of the patient might might make it easier or is there other factors that are involved in actual the, the surgery itself 
Um, I mean, I'll speak. I'll speak for myself here. Joe, Joe might have a different opinion. I think. I think in some ways, in some ways, cats are um, a bit. In some ways, cats are easier in that um, the approach is, I guess, more. You can get a more perpendicular approach, and you have less bone to drill for so your trajectory is shorter um dogs um you have to drill through more through more bone you you can't angle the the well you, you can't open the mouth as wide um so you tend to be on a more angled trajectory um and uh dogs have um much taller pterygoid processes or sorry hamular processes of the pterygoid bones which means that your um, working space through that distance is a bit narrower Um, having said that um, cats are smaller so that in itself makes things potentially a bit more fiddly as well so um, I I mean I'd almost sort of approach them as equivalently um, fiddly but just fiddly in their own way um but uh yeah so i you know i i I wouldn't necessarily say one is is dramatically more difficult than the other it's just different and it's it's a matter of knowing the anatomy and knowing landmarks and sort of um you know i'm I'm sure joe's just like me we spend a a, you know a, a fair amount of time looking at the images both before the surgery when we're planning it and then during the surgery as well with, um, you know, reconstructions of the images up on the screen while we're doing the surgery, so... So so you're nodding there, Joe. Are you in complete agreement with your esteemed colleague, or...? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I think they're different, um, but uh, I think it's tricky when you're coming from a point of view of having done so many more cats than we have done dogs, um, and that familiarisation with the anatomy is probably so important that that leads it to be a bit easier for us. I suppose that cats are kind of uniform in some ways, or their cat's skull shape is not going to necessarily change so much compared to... The different dog. Yeah, there's there's, yeah. there's definitely more uh, anatomic variability with the the landmarks for the pituitary fossa in dogs than there is in in cats. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. So, um, so I suppose that there are other options to to treat these patients too, maybe like medical therapy and radiation therapy. So, so why is it now? Is, is it is it now that we're uh, trying more surgery and we're thinking this is a good option or uh, is it? Is there any evidence to suggest that radiation therapy or medical therapy is, is better in the long run, or is it still that we don't quite know what is the best treatment? Um, in, in human surgery is is definitely considered standard of care. Um, you know, individual patients will have individual reasons that um, uh, may preclude surgery in them um, you know so and it also depends on what you are trying to achieve with the hypophysectomy I mean broadly speaking um, you know are we aiming for a um, endocrine cure um, of, of which case surgery is the the um, uh, the the method most likely to, to give you an endocrine cure um, and certainly a you know, a, 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 um, a sustained endocrine cure. Um, you know, if, if the tumours get big enough and we're aiming for palliation of neurological 
signs. Um, you know, that would be, uh, you know, certainly the big tumours, un unfortunately, even though the risks associated with the surgery go up and the likelihood of an endocrine cure goes down if the, the tumours get too too large. Um, there's, there's also, you know, for, for those cases, unfortunately not great options for them with other modalities. I mean, ra radiation will, um, for pituitary adenomas, undoubtedly shrink them, um, uh, and that may in itself um, palliate some neurological signs. Um, but the, um, the, the, the response of the endocrinopathy to radiation therapy it can be quite variable, um, both in terms of are they likely going to go into an endocrine remission um, and are they, uh, you know, at, at what point are they going to do that? Which can be quite important, particularly with the cats. With, with, with Our experience with the cats is about 80% um, of them will go into complete diabetic remission if they have a hypophysectomy um, uh, and uh, the other 20% will have a dramatic reduction in their insulin requirement. Um, and that happens in a fairly predictable time frame after the surgery as in within the first couple of weeks I can't, I can't remember what the from the last cohort we looked at the median or something like nine days or something like that from from memory so um you know the clinicians and the owners are sort of at the ready in terms of monitoring the cat's insulin requirements and and you know when to when they're going to need to drop it um you know, cases in the literature that have had radiation therapy, even though they may go into diabetic remission, sometimes that can take months. Um, and if, you know, an owner's at home giving fairly high doses of insulin and then the the um, the cat, um, you know, suddenly doesn't need those high doses anymore and, um, uh, you know, that there, there is a greater potential for them to, to have a hypoglycemic episode, etc. So... Um, you know, I, I think uh, you know there, there is there is going to be a place for for radiation and for for medical therapy in in animals with pituitary tumours broadly, but um, you know certainly the surgery is the um, is is likely to be the most definitive and you know elegant solution if uh, if that patient is able to to go through with it. I mean, I guess cost is is mm -hmm. obviously always going to be an issue in in veterinary medicine as well. Do you have any counter to that, uh, Joe? I suppose you've got two surgeons here, so naturally I was going to say we'll, we'll, we'll come. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, it's basically as Patrick says, and I think that with regards to things like cost and number of anaesthetic procedures that animal goes through potentially could be greater, even with radiation therapy, if we're having to have multiple anaesthetics, for example, there's potentially risks that the owners might not want to, to go through as well. And I suppose although we're we're surgically removing the the pituitary gland, um, we we still are they are still going to require some medical therapy ongoing. So we're not we're not removing that uh, that the the necessity to give medication. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess that with regards to the surgical procedures that we have at the moment, we're not able to remove just the tumour, just the, you know, uh, endocrinally, the active tumour cells. We're removing the entire pituitary gland uh, with these surgeries. And therefore, yeah, we are going to need to replace hormones that they're not producing by themselves anymore. So uh, these animals will need to go on thyroid um, supplementation, 
hydrocortisone supplementation as well, and uh, typically uh, DDAVP to replace the ADH that they're not producing. Having said that, in a lot of cases, we're able to wean them off the DDAVP supplementation. So it kind of leaves them in a situation where they need thyroid hormone supplementation and hydrocortisone to replace their glucocorticoids. But um, in most cases, compared to the situation they were in before surgery, we consider that a far better scenario. We've removed the tumour, removed the more life-threatening endocrine um, disease and they're just replaced with this supplementation that's required afterwards and you know that's tablets as well as opposed to injections and um, definitely we would consider it a far superior situation to be in um, but yeah it is important to remember they're going to need some kind of medication following that afterwards. See, see with, with that in, in mind as well so yeah, how do we like do we have any criteria for case selection or is it just too early days with the, with the number of cases that we have and of, of what will um, respond better to, to surgery? Or, or do we just assume that we, we imagine that most of them will respond better to surgery? Um, but so I suppose are there any criteria that you guys have in mind for dogs and, and cats? Um, I get for functional tumours, so ones that are causing an endocrinopathy. Um, I mean, I, I guess case selection, um, you know, there's, there's a, yeah, I mean, size of tumour would be a, a big one. Um, it, the, the larger, I mean, ultimately you're going to be having a conversation with the owner about... Um, what are we trying to achieve with the... If we were to do a hypovasectomy, what are we trying to achieve? Or if we're, if we're offering any treatment, what are we trying to achieve? Um, if, there are, if they are a larger tumour, um, uh, then the, the likelihood of an, um, an endocrine cure is, is less. Um, I mean, we're still, I guess, um, you know, we, 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 we're still... Um, working this out in 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 cats and certainly we we have operated some fairly large tumors in 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 cats as in you know the sort of 11 12 13 millimeter mark i think we did 14 millimeter mark where um diameter where um they, they have gone into diabetic remission and that's that's great um you know some of the the you know we've done relatively few dogs here but you know our our Population of dogs have been very much split between um, dogs with relatively small hormonally active tumours, which um, have done very well as you would hope and expect. They've they've neurologically been normal before surgery. They've been neurologically normal after surgery, um, and they've been cured of their endocrinopathy. Um, we also see dogs that that come in, um, you know, they've been managed for hyperadrenocorticism for, um, you know, often years, some of them, and then they're presenting with neurological signs, in which case um, surgery, we're, we're unlikely to offer them an endocrine cure, and that's probably not the aim of surgery at that stage. At that stage, it's really palliation because, um, uh, you know, hopefully over, over time... Um, uh, with um, you know changes in instrumentation, we will will get better at, at getting bigger tumours out. But um, you know certainly once they they reach a, a certain size, um, uh, and certainly a certain size in proportion to the individual animal's head, um, then um, you know 
inevitably some in, in those cases some tumor remains in there which will eventually regrow but um you know if we debulk the tumor often they are neurologically improved so i yeah i guess as far as case selection goes you know one one will be based on tumor size um Another one would be based on, you know, if, if they have significant comorbidities um, that might interfere with um, recovery from surgery, that might change things. Um, you know, having said that, often with these animals with endocrinopathies, a lot of their comorbidities are, are driven by the um, endocrine disease itself. So, you know, I guess a good example would be um, the, the, the cats with... Um, hypersomatotrophism, diabetes, um, and phenotypically acromegalic, they can have a, well, they have a, a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, which, um, you know, some of them, we've, we've had some cases that have been sort of teetering on the brink of, of heart failure, which once we've done the, um, the surgery, they've actually got their, their cardiomyopathy has actually gone on to improve. So it's a you know, reversible myocardial changes. Um, I did two cats a couple of years ago that had um, pituitary-dependent hyperadrenocorticism and they had significant um, morbidity associated with skin tearing and, and fragility and they were also improved post-op. So we did, we did need to get their skin under control beforehand. But, you know, it, 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 yeah, it's, it's balancing the, the comorbidity of the, the patient with, you know, whether we can, you know, hopefully improve that with the surgery and and um and uh you know take care of multiple problems at at once um i guess you know cost is going to you know affect what um what certain owners are, are willing to do obviously um i guess i would say another way of looking at it though is that um you know several several years of um you know, chronic medical therapy, either for the diabetes or for the hyperadrenocorticism, um, and monitoring of that, you know, that will add up over time. Um, surgery is obviously a, a larger outlay initially, um, but, um, you know, the, the drugs that Joe's just mentioned to, to keep them on, um, you know, thyroxine and, and hydrocortisone or, or prednisolone are, you know, reasonably inexpensive and they're you know at that stage their you know their their monitoring requirements will likely be less so um and then yeah i guess case selection as well the owners need to be completely up for it as well because um you know there, there's risks associated with everything but there's you know there's unequivocally going to be a you know some risk of morbidity and mortality with a with a hypophysectomy um you know we have been getting that down over the the, the years there's a you know there's obviously a bit of a, a learning curve for the um both the surgeon and the institution in terms of the internists and the criticalists that are also managing the cases but um you know and uh you know there's so far there have been relatively few institutions doing them but um you know that's that's changing um uh but um uh yeah so they have to be up for for some degree of risk so, so can I can I ask sort of like both of you? So, so why in in Utrecht uh, did uh, are dogs more treated with hypervasectomies than sort of medical management? Is that because it's institution driven? Do we do we think or or? Yeah, I think so. I think that's that's you know that that's mm -hmm. what they get offered. Um, 
uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I can't sort of speak for them for exactly how the uh, the conversations go with their owners, obviously, but they've they've been able to offer hypothesectomy for for many years now. Um, they're a very competent team at doing it, and um, uh, you know, it is you know as as it's standard of care in in people if if the patient is. Um, you know, otherwise eligible, then then they get offered that as well. Um, I don't know how much, um, uh, you know, how much the sort of um, f- financial aspects of it come into it. In that, um, you know, I, I guess one thing that we've um, one uh, it's not well issue is probably not the right word but in the UK where, where pet insurance is quite ubiquitous, it's not so much of an issue for owners to to keep their dog on trilostain because the insurance company picks up the the bill um on their their behalf um whereas if uh you know if, if you're you're potentially up against uh you know many years of of trilostain and monitoring and and you don't have have pet insurance um you know then the economics may come into it as well and you'd, you'd look at that and say well it's going to cost me x amount of money to to do the hypothesectomy now but if that means that we can um you know effectively you know give my dog a, an endocrine cure and and a tumor cure because you know another thing to keep in mind is that um you know a, a reasonable percentage of of dogs that have pituitary dependent hyperadrenocorticism so yeah that i'm not an internist so that the caveat is that these numbers might be slightly wrong but about 20 percent sorry about 80 percent of Dogs with hyperadrenocorticism have pituitary-dependent hyperadrenocorticism, which means they have a brain tumour, they have a pituitary tumour, and about 20% of those dogs will go on to develop neurological signs, in, in which case they mostly die of their brain tumour because it's reached that size. So if you can cure them of their, their endocrinopathy and their brain tumour sooner rather than... than later um you've well you've got a much better chance of of a cure um so and yeah i think that comes on to a bit about the the case selection as well when we were talking about i think it's potentially important to suggest that when we're looking at criteria for an appropriate case we're not saying that they need to have a sort of identifiable mass on imaging so if we've got the endocrine evidence of a pituitary tumour, be that hyperadrenocorticism or hypersomatotropism, based on their endocrine assessment, then they could be considered a surgical candidate to remove their endocrinologically active tumour that may or may not be visible. So we don't necessarily need to get to the point where we can see a mass on imaging so we can get in there earlier. And so, so what are um, so the, the particular risks and, and complications for for these um, for these surgeries? So, like Patrick says, I mean the, these things are coming down all the time with regards to periop mortality. Um, for us, with the cats, probably over the last few years, it sits at about ten percent periop mortality. Um, but we hope that you know even that is coming down. And uh, and I guess with regards to risks of events that could lead to periop mortality then we're potentially mainly looking at vascular events hemorrhage um i guess it is uncommon yeah Yeah. 
causes some kind of stroke during the procedure. Um, I guess in the sort of periop period, then we could have a risk of respiratory um, obstructions, things like that. Um, I guess infection in the first few weeks perioperatively. Again, it's not something that we're seeing particularly commonly, but has been found in one or two of the cases. Um, with regards to sort of morbidity, um, neurological complications of the procedure have been sort of reassuringly uncommon, um, particularly in the cats. Um, I guess that we've seen, yeah, occasional transient neurological deficits post-operatively, um, but unless they've been associated with one of these sort of massive vascular events or strokes, then we haven't really seen much in the way of um, periop morbidity associated with the procedure, which has been, you know, encouraging to see. And I know you guys haven't done as, as many dogs where there are risks and complications that, that the same with dogs, or has it skewed differently? Um, the, uh, the, the, I, I guess, the, well, yes, if that was the answer to the, the question. Like, similar, like the, uh, the, the, the likelihood of neurological deterioration post-op is, is, is very small if they they come in with a small tumour. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, there is a lot of talk in the literature about what's a macroadenoma and what's a microadenoma, and that's, you know, in many ways is a bit arbitrary. It's, it's given a measure of, of 10 millimetres, but that comes from the human field. I, I guess for, I would say, anything, anything that is large enough that it's no longer confined to the, mm. the cella tersica, then, then I would say that that is a a tumour where there is a greater risk of a neurological deterioration. So, you know, another, you know, I guess another reason for me to advocate to get them out early folks when they're mm. small. Um, larger tumours, there is more of a risk of, of neurological deterioration um, post-op. And, you know, that's, you know, even with the, um, the sort of you know greatest surgical technique in in the world if there's um you know if if the tumor is is causing a significant amount of pressure or edema on the surrounding brain structures mm. in the, the hypothalamus or the you know it's invading into the third ventricle or or um or, or the like there is uh you know a greater risk of of neurological deterioration which may be transient but um you know it's something that we obviously don't like to mm. don't like to see I guess in um, dogs, one of the things that comes up from the Utrecht uh, cases, I guess, is dry eye as well yeah, as a yeah. potential complication of neurogenic dry eye, yeah. which uh, we haven't seen too much, but obviously we've we seen we've so many. We've dogs. seen a couple of transient mm -hmm. cases in the cats, but I don't think we've mm -hmm. had any persistent cases. So it's it's something that we do we do monitor with, with Schermatier tests and mm -hmm. and um, and uh, eye lubrication as as needed. So, so Joe, in the, at the at the RVC, so you're obviously the, the the focal person to do these hypervasectomies now. Um, is there more of interest with with dogs and doing hypervasectomy in dogs now? Are you getting more inquiries about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, you know the idea is like we've been discussing is to try and shift the mindset with regards to how we approach dogs with pituitary dependent hyperadrenal corticism and. You know, I guess remembering that this is, as Patrick says, it's a pituitary tumour. It's a surgical disease. It's a surgical disease, exactly. And um, and I guess as well as, you know, establishing that, is getting them early 
because we know that and uh, the, the Utrecht cases back this up that the smaller the tumor that the better the outcome is going to be so if we can get them in earlier when we've not got this uh, larger mass that comes with greater risk of periop mortality and a higher risk of a recurrence further down the line then we can get a better outcome as well so yeah that is increasing as, uh as Sophocles said two and a half thousand years ago, no good physician quavers incantations when the malady he's treating needs the knife. That's exactly. It's quite quite eloquently put, Pat. But I, I would <laughs> thank you, Dom. Anything anything less from, from that. Um, so uh, so so I suppose that the the as my my uh, gross <clears throat> take on it is that as our um, abilities to diagnose or use diagnostic imaging to a higher spec, but also as our technical skills improve as well, that there seems to be more of a trend towards, you know, what what we can do. Because uh, you know, there's you mentioned with the mics were closed that there's a couple of places in North America that do hypervasectomies as well. Um, there's obviously Dr. Bjorg in, in Utrecht that does that, and and I suppose Pat now uh, Australia will open the doors, considering that you're uh, you're now at, com uh, coming soon, coming soon to the Sydney Animal Specialist Hospital. In Sydney, um, and say, say, say that that that's great. Have you had inquiries since you've? We've uh, had a few inquiries, yeah, yeah. and we, we should hopefully be uh, ready to be up and running within a few months. So, so will that be the the first sort of southern hemisphere hypervasectomies? Uh, it will. I think it'll be the first where we'll be keen to offer it on a regular basis. Uh, a few surgeons have have um, have have done a. a a couple sporadically around the place but you know we're, we're keen to um uh we're keen to set up a program like we had have well had or have here at the the rvc absolutely it's continuing yeah. it's <laughs> continuing with ernest is, is there a network of uh, hypervasectomy surgeons uh, do you have like a group emailing address that you were uh, communicating oh we have with? a secret handshake that's right that's very for the uh Yes, the, the uh, city. Of and unfortunately, you can't see it on the podcast, but we're, <laughs> Joe we're and I are doing it right now. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, do you think there's anything uh, anything else that we need to uh, cover in the in the realm of hypervasectomies? Um, I, I guess as far well imaging, we didn't really talk about imaging mm. that much. Yeah. I get, and I guess part of it is, um, as, as Joe was saying before, I, you know, the the um, I. I I don't think, you know, f finding only a small mass or, or not an obviously apparent mass on, on, um, on imaging, I don't think precludes the reason to do a, a hypophysectomy if you have a firm endocrine diagnosis of a pituitary-dependent tumour. Um, I mean, as far as what imaging is um, essential, uh, you know, both of us... Um, you know, would want a, a CT um, done uh, preoperatively uh, because we do um, use various bony landmarks um, for surgical planning and for referencing, you know, beforehand and, and intraoperatively. Um, you know, MRI, uh, you know, if, if we can have an MRI beforehand as well, then that that's great. It does, it, it does give you a... Um, you know, potentially better imaging of the, of the um, well, certainly of the tumour and potentially um, imaging of, of uh, if, if there's any likely vascular involvement with the arterial circle or the, or the cavernous sinus. Um, you know, ha having said that, though, um, realistically, um, 
you know we often need to choose which you know choose one uh, or the other based on on owner finances because that you know the owners are going to need to uh, be able to you know pay for treatment as well as pre-operative diagnostic images um and uh you know so if we have to choose one i would choose a, a, a ct because uh you know we we need that for the surgery and i, th I think otherwise we, we we would just uh you know need to uh, assume that there could possibly be involvement of the cavernous sinus uh or arterial circle dependent on the size of the tumor and you know do our best to, to work around that i mean certainly if we had an mri and we couldn't see obvious evidence of vascular involvement we wouldn't be going in all cavalier anyway um yeah can i ask as well just roughly um how how long the the surgery takes not that not necessarily the the specific from time cutting to time closing but that for the whole um, I suppose like CT beforehand, or do you? Do you not we we often do that on different yeah. days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they have like two separate uh, anaesthetics normally. Could or... do under station though CT, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Not normally by the the time. Yeah. Like the, the the way it generally works at the the RVC, and I'm sure in most places the the, the cases they they really start off as a a case um, with the um, internal medicine service, and they they assess them, work up their endocrinopathy, work up any comorbidities. Um, so by the by the time they 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 come to to see us, and uh, you know, but certainly by the time it's surgery day, they've already had their their CT done. We've already done the um, pre-surgery um, imaging planning. Um, I mean, as, as far as the, the actual day goes and, and how long it takes to do the surgery, that, that really also depends on the size of the tumour and the size of the animal. And, and often the tumour itself, the, the tumours can have, you know, slightly different textures. Sometimes they sort of come out reasonably, you know, we get small tumours that come out reasonably rapidly as a bit of a... A blob, and it doesn't take too much more than a, an hour for the actual, you know, the main part of the surgery. Um, you know, sometimes if you if you encounter a lot of hemorrhage, it's a bigger tumor. The tumor's fragmenting, um, then that can take longer. So it's a it's a it's a movable feast. Fair, fair enough. So, so you're not going to try and do like two or three in a in a day at any time soon. It's um, it. Uh, I mean, from from a surgeon's point of view, I I mean, I. I don't see why we couldn't do more than one in a day. But I guess the other thing to keep in mind is it is a real team effort. You know, the, we've, we've got the anaesthesia service, um, you know, working on it. We've got the, um, the internal medicine guys and the criticalists afterwards. So, um, you know, I, I guess with, uh, you know, you, you don't want to sort of overload the whole team who have other potentially other things going on as as well so i know have you have you done more than one in a day since no I no i was going to say that uh if any of the anesthesia team are listening they'll probably be panicking right now okay we mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're aspiring to do three in a day yeah, at the rvc now yeah. so. <laughs> we'll, we'll try on the same day as one of the cardiac bypasses yeah, yeah perfect, so perfect so maybe we can wrap it up to four and, and sort of see see, see mm. what happens um, so, uh, so uh, do you have any any final uh, comments? Well, we haven't said hello 
to... Yeah, I was just going to say hello to Jason Isaacs. Excellent. All at one squad. Thank you. So, uh, so, and thank you both uh, very much for, for coming in, um, Pat, for flying all the way from Australia just for thank this you. podcast. Thank yeah. you. Boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> <laughs> An oldie but a goodie. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but, but there you go. We should get a five-star review just for that, Tom. <laughs> in fact, you'll probably give it to us. So, uh, so we'll wrap it up there. So many thanks both for your time today. So Dr. Patrick Kenny and Dr. Jay Fenn, thank you so much for, uh, for your time. Um, and thank to you guys for, for listening. So don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device, Jared, like that. Uh, and the, that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. So if you leave us a, a review, a five-star review, would be great on Apple Podcast or Acast. And don't forget to tell your friends, vet friends or any friends, maybe even your family as well. We'll play some show notes in the RBC pages. So just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice and it should be top of the tree. So if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email me, dbarfield at rbc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye.